I love that we clap for the announcements now. I don't know if that's weird or not, but uh, that's a nice touch. So, cool. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Well, hey, if we haven't met, I'm Parker. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited this morning to be kicking off a new series called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. So, in, uh, you should have received a, a book uh, and some materials. If you did not, Make sure you get that on your way out this morning because we are all reading the book as a part of this series. So, um, you know, as in the past, if you hate reading or if you refuse to read the book, um, you know, sorry, you need to. Um, and I will, I'll read it to you. So just call me and I'll read it to you. If you really won't read it, uh, it'll be great. It'll be a little audiobook experience, unedited. So I'll probably make lots of mistakes and it'll be great. Um, so you, you really did. You picked a great week to be here because this series is, is integral to, to what we are doing here, what we feel like God has given us to do in this community uh, in terms of being good neighbors, being good neighbors in the Oxford community and in the surrounding areas. So if you're not aware, at the beginning of 2022, uh, Vineyard USA, the, the you know, larger nationwide organization, installed a new national director. Uh, of our, our movement, and his name is Jay Pathak, and he is one of the authors of this book that, that we've given you. So um, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. A few years ago, four or five years ago, when I was starting to work on my Vineyard Institute certificate program, when I was an intern here, I read this book, and it really changed uh, a lot of my perspectives and a lot of my thinking around what it means to fulfill the great commandment. That Jesus gave us. That's, that's what we'll be talking about for a lot of this series. It's going to be our main text this morning. Uh, and Jay has really pioneered some awesome approaches in this area. He gives us some great tools and insights and just ways of thinking about what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. So Jay, uh, currently, in addition to being our national director, he is the senior pastor of, of a large vineyard church, actually a network of community churches in Denver, Colorado. Um, there are several of them in, in different neighborhoods. So there's, you know, the big church, and then they've got five or six other churches in communities around Denver. And this series, my hope for this series is this. We had a few uh, prophetic words this morning from our prayer team as we were praying before the service. My hope is that this series would make it easy for us to connect with our neighbors and connect with the people around us. I don't know about you, but I'm an introvert, and when I come into church and I find out that we're doing a series about outreach or uh, connecting with our neighbors or evangelism or whatever, it makes my stomach flip because I don't want to talk to strangers. <laughs> I actually, most of the time, I think, this isn't true, but I think I want left alone, and, and I think a lot of people feel that way today. They think they want left alone. But the truth is that people need community. People need connection in order to thrive. And that is one of the main things that the church can offer people. And so this series is about stepping into that. We've been restating our mission statement frequently over the last number of weeks. And I want to read it to you again because we feel strongly that this is the key to what God has for us in this season. You know, we got some words, some trusted friends uh, toward the end of last year, or actually beginning of this year, uh, about our mission statement and refocusing on this and, and putting it in front of us and letting God speak to us about it. So here it is. We are training passionate lovers of Jesus to walk daily 
in the power, presence, and love of the Holy Spirit. Now, other churches and other movements, they focus on, you know, maybe they focus on big prayer gatherings, or they focus on big conferences where, you know, tens of thousands of people come together. Or maybe they focus on, uh, you know, reading the Bible and making the Bible really accessible to people. And, and we love all those things and we bless all those things. But what we feel like God has called us to do is to train people and to walk daily in the things that Jesus did in our community. That's why the School of, School of Kingdom Ministry is so important to this church. And that's why uh, things like this are the heartbeat of who we are as a community. There's a little anecdote from John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, that I really like that I think is a good segue into what we're talking about today. In 1989, uh, he made note of this little thing that happened. So this guy came into his office, and he was, he was kind of frustrated and disgruntled, and he said, hey, you know, um, there was a, a homeless man in the park, and I came across this homeless man, and I, I, I just was moved with compassion. I brought him home with me. We got him a shower. We got him a hot meal. Uh, he's living in my basement now, and we're working on getting him a job, but the church really needs to do something. And John looked at the guy, and he said, well, it sounds like the church is doing something. Now, that's challenging, and, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you all need to go out after church and, you know, go find someone who's homeless and, and invite them to live in your basement, but maybe you do. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but Maybe you do, because those are the kinds of radically generous things that Jesus invites us to do with our lives. Um, we can only do a few things well. We can only do a few things well. We can't do everything, because if we do everything, we'll do a little bit of everything, and we'll do it all really poorly, and, and we'll do it in a way that's shallow, where we'll lose connection with people, and we'll fall through on commitments and, and, and we won't be able to uh, live up to what Jesus has for us. But if we can only do a few things well, let's make one of them the thing that Jesus said matters most. Can we agree on that? If we can only do a few things well, let's make one of them the thing that Jesus said matters most. So a, a good neighbor, a good neighbor always trumps a good program. A good neighbor always trumps a good program. Now, I don't want to put down programs because we have some great programs. Other churches in this city have great programs. But a good neighbor always trumps a great program. How many of you are in this room because of a program? Like two, three people. How many of you are in this room because you made a meaningful connection with another person? who attends this church or who has been trained or equipped by this church, everybody, almost everybody, right? And so that's what we're talking about. Programs are wonderful opportunities to connect, but good neighbors are far more important. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. And when he calls us to love our neighbors, he's not talking about metaphorical love for our metaphorical neighbors. He's not talking about metaphorical love for our metaphorical neighbors. And when we read this passage that we're going to read this morning, we can often slip into the mindset that Jesus is speaking in generalities about people in general. But the truth is that Jesus is, is delivering a very specific word to us 
about real people that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. And so this Art of Neighboring series is going to give us strategies to be catalysts for the gospel in our neighborhoods. And, And our goal is to be moving from strangers to acquaintances and from acquaintances to meaningful connections with our actual neighbors, the people who live in the homes around ours, the people who live in your apartment building, the people who live on your street, uh, and so on. So we have some goals for this series. I like this because we don't necessarily always have goals for our teaching series, but we have some goals. So put our goals up there. Here are our goals. Everybody's going to read The Art of Neighboring. And we have some videos, and there's a study guide in the back of the book. Now, we're not running small groups for this series, but what I want to encourage you to do is, as you read, uh, have conversations. With, take some intentional time, even if it's 20 minutes, in the middle of your week with your family or with a friend or somebody who goes to this church, or if you can't find anybody to talk to about it, come and talk to me about it. Call me, right? I'll read you the book, and then we'll talk about it. Um, So we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. There's a study guide in the back of the book, and there's a link on your reading guide to some videos that will help start your conversations. They're three or four minutes long, so they're really easy to just, you know, listen. It'll get you in the right frame of mind, and then keep going. But our second goal is to make meaningful connections with your eight closest neighbors. We don't often put numbers to things. We don't often do that, but... I think it's really important that we are able to uh, hold on to something as we go through this series. And so the goal is to make some meaningful connections with your eight closest neighbors. Now, I will talk more about that next week. We have some tools and some things to help you engage, uh, but that's, that's our second goal. Our third goal is to, to, uh, do to engage in 400 acts of neighboring as a church. Now, don't panic. This series is six weeks long, and there are probably 50 of us hearing this right now. So if all 50 of us do one of these every week, you know, that's, that's got us on a pretty good trajectory, okay? So, so, you know, if all 50 of us do two of these every week, we'll far exceed our goal. And these are not difficult things. Uh, Debbie Anderson has put together a list of 25 ways to love your neighbor, and you should have gotten one of those with your book this morning. Those are just suggestions, and if you have other ideas, please feel free to do those things and to count them. We're going to have a wall up next week with some tiny little houses, and so when you come in for church or when you're leaving church, you can write those acts of neighboring on the little house as specifically or vaguely as you would like. You don't have to sign your name to it. And really what this is, is we want this to be a visual representation of our engagement with our neighbors so that every week we come in and we see the number of little paper houses on the wall grow. And we can see how powerful it is over time when we choose to engage with our neighbors as a church. Um, The next goal is to host three to five block parties in different neighborhoods around Oxford. Now, you'll read more about block parties in the book as you go, but what is this all about? This is just an opportunity to engage people and to be together, okay? These aren't 
you know, evangelistic crusades. This isn't church in the park. It's not any of those things. It's time for us to come together with our neighbors and spend time with them. So the block parties, here's how this is going to go. The Holy Spirit is going to give three to five people or families in our midst the motivation to want to host one of these block parties. As a church, we're going to partner with you. We're going to make sure that you have the resources that you need, the people that you need, the help that you need to connect with people and to put together a a fun event where people can get together and eat food and enjoy one another's company. There are block party guides on the info desk in the back of church. If you are thinking that this might be the kind of thing that you would like to take on as a challenge to yourself or to your family, pick up one of those guides and read through it, and we'll talk. These parties don't have to happen in the span of the series, okay? So we don't have, you know, it's not, hey, in the next six weeks, we need to have three to five block parties, but I would love it if they all happened before the end of the year, okay? Now, that's a lot, and I know that that's probably what a lot of you are thinking right now, is, hey, that's a lot of goals. That's pretty ambitious, but we want to be ambitious with this because when we set our goals high, if we fall a little short of them, we've still accomplished a lot. And, and so if we set these goals just at the bare minimum of what we think that, you know, maybe we could easily accomplish as a church, then we wouldn't have uh, quite the impact, I think, that, that we would uh, be set up to have in the community. So those are our goals. We're going to make them available to you so that you can see those things and remind yourselves of them. Um, In addition to these things, I'll be recording a video interview with Jay, with our national director, uh, to sort of supplement our series. And so he's going to share some things about the book with us, and then he's going to give us some specific insights about living in a a city like Oxford, a small town that is home to a large university. And what does that mean for us? So I'm really excited. That's going to be coming to you at some point uh, during the series once we get to record that. Uh, And so we'll have some specific insights from the author for us. And he's going to pray for Oxford Vineyard and just bless us in this journey. So I'm really excited uh, for us to get to kind of connect with Jay. Um, So yeah, that's a lot of goals. But before we dive in and we start to work on some of these things, we've got to do like the foundational work of sort of setting our hearts in this direction. The goal is not for any of this to be a burden. The goal is for us to come together, to work together, to accomplish something as a community. And, and the, the end goal is for us to reveal Jesus to our neighbors, to reveal the character of God, and for them to see us living out this mission statement. People will be attracted to that. So if I could summarize this whole series in one sentence, it would be this. When Jesus said to love your neighbor, he intended for us to take that command very literally. When Jesus said to love your neighbor, he intended for us to take that command very literally. And so throughout this series, we're going to look at how we as faithful followers of Jesus live out that command. And so today, I want to start with the critical text for this whole series. So we're going to read a little bit longer chunk, maybe, than we usually would, uh, but I think 
it'll be good. So if you'd like to read along, this is coming from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, feel free to join in. This is going to be a story that a lot of us have heard before. We're reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable has permeated culture. You know, one of the things that I like to do is I like to just kind of look through uh, song lyrics because the songs that we sing often reflect what's happening in the hearts of people and what people know. And what I found is throughout um, centuries of American music, the Good Samaritan shows up in our songs all the time. And I tried to pick a good reference, but there are honestly so many that I couldn't even find one. I mean, everybody from, you know, Joni Mitchell to Bob Dylan to Dr. Dre to, I mean, the Good Samaritan shows up in surprising places. So this is something that our culture is superficially familiar with. But what I hope we can do is take a fresh look at this and let the Spirit uh, maybe reveal some new things to us about what Jesus is saying in this parable. So let's go ahead and read. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here we have an instance of Jesus doing a little teaching and someone asks him a question and he answers the question with a question. And we're familiar with this being uh, kind of the style in which rabbis would teach. There was a rabbi that I had the opportunity to learn from when I was a student at Miami University. And I asked him, you know, why do rabbis always like answer questions with questions? And his answer was intriguing. He said, why wouldn't rabbis answer questions with questions? <laughs> and I said, wow, thanks a lot. That gives me, gives me a lot of insight. So here, this, this individual is, is testing Jesus. He's testing Jesus. It says he's a lawyer, so he's, he's familiar with the law. A lawyer, in this context, would have, be, would have been someone who knew the Jewish law. So, you know, here we have, like, a, a little bit of a separation between, like, people who study the Bible and then lawyers, in our context, are people who interpret the law of the land. At this time, the lawyer would have been in reference to someone who knew the, the Hebrew law, who knew the, the Hebrew Bible really well. And he's testing Jesus because these guys are constantly trying to figure out if Jesus is, is legit, so to speak. And so he's asking him this question, um, hoping that Jesus will give him a particular answer. And a lot of times we think that this concept of, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we think that that originated with Jesus, but it was actually a foundational principle in Jewish law. So this, this would have been uh, what the, this was his answer. This was the lawyer's answer. And so this is, this is orthodoxy at this time. This is Jewish uh, thought 101. So this is not a new idea. What's a new idea is the way Jesus interprets this law. 
And so the story that Jesus tells is the new thing here. So the lawyer would have been familiar with this. Obviously, he gives this good answer, and Jesus says, you're right. But when we continue reading, it says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he gives the right answer. Jesus says, you're right. And then he says, but who is my neighbor? Because he wants to hear how Jesus is going to define this. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You may or may not be familiar with this, but the priest and the Levite signify in this story people who would have been upstanding citizens and folks who should understand the law well. They're people that this society would have respected, and they're people that you would expect in this situation to do the right thing. And they pass by. And Jesus goes on, he says, but a Samaritan, as he, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I'm sure you've heard the point made that the Samaritan would have been someone detestable in this society at this point in time. The, the hearer of Jesus telling this parable would have connected the Samaritan with someone who was of low moral standing, someone who was looked down upon in society at this point in time, someone who we certainly would not go to to find out how we should behave, right? And so what I want you to do is just take a minute and in your mind, replace the Samaritan with someone who fills that space in your mind. And I don't want to assume or call out anyone's you know, prejudices, but just replace the Samaritan with someone in your mind who signifies the, 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 the downfall of morality the destruction of Christian culture, as it were. The kind of person that you would think of and say, there is no way that that person is living the way of Jesus better than I am. Substitute that person for the Samaritan in your mind, and then we'll go on. So it says, the Samaritan had compassion and, and he went to him, he went to this man, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. So to make this tangible, from Jericho to Jerusalem is about like walking from Cleveland to Cincinnati. Okay? So you get to about Columbus, and then you get beat up and stripped and robbed, and you're lying on the side of the road. And so it says this man put the, uh, the, the Samaritan put this man on his animal, so he would have been traveling by himself, probably with a donkey. So he puts the injured man on his donkey, and he walks the rest of the way from Columbus to Cincinnati, just to contextualize this. Um, and then the next day, he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So now he has made his journey much more difficult for himself. He's inconvenienced himself seriously. Not only has he inconvenienced himself on the journey, but he's inconvenienced himself financially by, by you know, giving money to have this man taken care of and then saying, I will cover the additional costs on my way back through. And so Jesus' response to this man's question, to the, to the lawyer's question, is intended to do something. And we miss it if we don't read this story in the wider context of the rest of the parables that Jesus is telling in this section of Scripture. Jesus is on his way to be crucified, to be unjustly condemned of crimes he did not commit, to be beaten, and to be executed. And so there is a subtext here in which Jesus is the man by the side of the road. And we miss that because we're talking about our neighbor. But Jesus often connects the way we treat neighbors with the way we're treating him. Because Jesus says, when I was poor and hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was in prison, you visited me. You see the connection here? And so the hearers of this parable are intended to draw a connection between the man beaten on the side of the road and Jesus himself. And so what Jesus is saying subtly in this parable is that the people who know the law, in our context, the people who know the Bible and are passionate about it, when they pass by the man beaten on the side of the road, they fail to put their knowledge of and passion for the scriptures into action. So Jesus then asks the question at the end of the parable, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And there's something really poignant about Jesus' choice of words here. He said the one who was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers was the one who showed him mercy. The one who was a neighbor to this man was the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan didn't tell the man the truth about why he was poor or what he needed to do to get unpoor. Right? The neighbor didn't interrogate the man about why he might have ended up in this situation on the side of the road and what he was going to do differently to make sure that he didn't end up there the next time. He showed him mercy and he cared for him. And according to Jesus, that is the mark of one who truly understands what it is to live this law of his. And I don't know about you, but... I spend a lot of time coming up with excuses for why I can't do this kind of thing. I personally am thinking often through 
<clears throat> the list of commitments that I have and the people that I'm responsible to and the right thing to do with what I have and, 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 and what it is that, that I have to do to make sure that I am on the right path and doing the right thing and doing the right thing by the people around me and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking about time, I'm thinking about money, and I'm thinking about being practical. And I'm thinking about making sure that I have appropriate boundaries in my life so that I don't overextend myself or do something you know, that would be detrimental to my uh, own mental health or to my uh, family's well-being. And those are reasonable concerns. I'm not trying to put those things down. But what I'm saying is uh, we often pass by hurting people in the name of keeping healthy boundaries or keeping our commitments. And the art of neighboring is about intentionality, and it's about seeing people. It's not about meeting every single need that you come across uh, on your way through life. It's, it's not necessarily about, you know, doing um, everything that you possibly can. It's not about overextending yourself. It's not about emptying your bank account. It's not about quitting your job. But what it's about is it's about seeing people. And what the Samaritan did that the others didn't do was he saw this man. And, and I think seeing him was what inspired mercy inside of him. Because when we don't see, we don't know what mercy should look like. But when we choose to, to see people, when we choose to engage our minds, when we choose to engage the spirit, when we come across a situation where maybe we could make a difference, when we choose to see people, that's when insight comes to us. That's when revelation comes to us from the Spirit about what could I do right now that would be merciful toward this person. Verse 29 says, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so the expert in the law here is presumably trying to define his neighbor as someone that he can choose to care for. More than likely, he has someone in mind that he hopes Jesus will say, you know, your neighbor is your, your, uh, your fellow Jew. Your neighbor is your brother in Christ. You know, your neighbor is the person who goes to your church. Your neighbor is your close family member. And... I've done this. I have excused myself by choosing who my neighbor is. I've, I've excused myself from this obligation because I've decided that I am going to set up parameters and set up a definition in my mind of who is my neighbor and who am I responsible to show mercy to and who am I not. In his book, The Presence of the Future, a kingdom theologian who has influenced our movement. His name is George Eldon Ladd. He wrote in the 40s and 50s. He makes the point that righteousness, right being before God, being made right, being made the right kind of person by what Jesus did, right being, being cultivated inside of us, should result in righteous actions. And so often we get stirred up about this, you know, are you talking about salvation by works and being saved by what I've done. No, okay? It, we're talking about 
salvation by faith in Jesus and, and grace and all that good stuff. But the kind of righteousness that that is, the kind of people that we become should be people who, uh, because this is being stirred up inside of us, it should result in righteous actions. It should result in righteous actions. And so George Ladd says, a righteous heart must manifest itself in righteous conduct. And so that's really what we're talking about at the heart of this, is to, to allow the teachings, the words of Jesus to permeate our being and stir up righteousness inside of us so that we are doing the righteous thing. And that's not the end goal. The end goal is to love God and to experience God and to be with him. But the outcome of that should look like mercy toward our neighbors. So in other words, we often say we believe one thing and we behave in an entirely different way. And so, you know, we are... Uh, it's, it's easy for us to get into a pattern of coming in here and singing songs on Sunday and praying prayers and reading the scriptures and then going out and living as if we had never done that. One of the most interesting things to me about uh, working at the golf course, I work at Indian Ridge Golf Course just on the weekends so that I can get some free golf, but uh, I'm often there by myself closing on Saturdays. I was just doing this last night and I bartend. And so while I'm making drinks for people who are at the golf course, obviously we strike up conversations and we, we interact. And people are always shocked when I tell them that I'm a pastor. And they say, oh, well, I go to such and such church. Or, you know, my mom was Catholic. That's the one that, you know, they, my mom was Catholic. Oh, okay, cool, <laughs> good for you. But when we have those conversations, something like comes over them like guilt because I've told them what I do and they're making a claim about who they are. They say, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm a believer, whatever. But I've heard the conversation that they just had. And, and not to condemn them, because I do the same thing, but the truth is that we wear different hats in different situations. Isn't that right? One of the, one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever been given, that I'm trying to embrace more and more, is... Um, Van Cochran, the senior pastor at Vineyard Northwest, he said, never teach differently from how you would talk to someone. Don't put on a different voice or put on a different persona or act differently when you are giving a talk on the scriptures than you would if you were just having a conversation with someone after church. And part of having uh, integrity as people, part of having integrity as followers of Jesus is acting the same in every situation. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that you have to act exactly the same in every situation. I probably speak with my parents differently than I would talk to Josh when we are hanging out and, you know, right, talking about whatever. And, and that's okay. There's context to our relationships, and there's context to, you know, the things that we do. But, but at the core of who we are, what it means to carry ourselves with Christ-like integrity is to be the same in every situation. And so when we, when we come here, when I come here and I give a talk like this, and then I leave this building and I drive past someone holding a sign on 732, and I don't give it a second thought, that's a low integrity move. 
And, and Jesus is talking about being people of integrity. One of the reasons that, that uh, my generation is evacuating the church is because they see hypocrisy, especially in, and, and I, you know, we bless people where, you know, the gospel is being preached, but they see hypocrisy, especially in enormous churches that, that you know, shovel wheelbarrows full of cash into the back room and don't live what they say they're about. We have the opportunity as a small church, I think small church has a, an advantage in this respect in a lot of ways, to be people of integrity because we all have relationships with one another and we kind of know what's going on when we leave this room. Does that make sense? It's not about policing each other and it's certainly not about guilt and it's not about condemnation and it's not about fear making you behave a certain way when we leave here. But our desire should be to, to be people of high integrity with respect to this stuff. And so I just want to talk for a second before we're finished about uh, impacting the city. Impacting the city. You know, a lot of churches, it's really popular right now to talk about bringing the kingdom to your city or transforming your city or being a, a force, you know, for the kingdom in your city. And a lot of people take this in a direction that kind of looks like if, if Christians can partner with power to enforce our will or our desires on our neighbors, then we will, in effect, have brought the kingdom to the city. And this is exactly the opposite way of what Jesus reveals about transforming and impacting a city. And I think that uh, the art, this Art of Neighboring series and the principles from the parable of the Good Samaritan have much to do with impacting our city because that's something we want, but we want to do it the Jesus way. We want to do it the right way. There's an awesome book called The Prophetic Imagination uh, by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he's a theologian that I respect a lot. He actually lives in Cincinnati. Um, he's, a, he's an older guy, but he wrote this. It's a skinny little book. It's only like 100 pages long, but it's really transformed a lot of my thinking about what it looks like to uh, be good neighbors in our current cultural context. And so I highly recommend that book. Uh, and, and in it, he makes some really powerful observations about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says this about the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, the replacing of numbness with compassion, that is the end of a cynical indifference and the beginning of noticed pain signals a social revolution. Now, that's an intense quote. There's some big words in there and there's some big concepts in there, but basically what Walter Brueggemann is saying is if we want to transform a city, if we want to transform the culture that we're in, if we want to transform the culture of this church, we must begin by noticing people, noticing their pain, and replacing our indifference toward one another with compassion, with love that acts, with love that, that produces good works toward one another. And so what he's saying here is that when we, when we cease to be indifferent toward one another, and let me give you an example of indifference. Josh shares deep pain with me, and I say, Josh, I'll be praying for you. 
and then we never speak about it again. That's indifference, right? Or when I know, <clears throat> when I know that someone has a difficult situation going on in, my, in, in their life and I avoid them. That's indifference. Or when we have shallow talk among one another. That's indifference. When, when we don't care about the state of one another's souls because we're on mission together, that's indifference. And when we do the same thing with our neighbors, that's indifference. And so, uh, you know, what Brueggemann is saying here is when we substitute this indifference for noticing, we can reform the way that our church exists in society. Because I don't know about you, but I hear people all the time talk about the indifference of the church. Now, I don't think the church is indifferent. I think sometimes we're poor communicators, and I think sometimes we do fail to put our money where our mouth is. But I don't believe that the church as an institution is indifferent toward people. But what we can do is be a part of changing that perception that people have. And so the story that I told about John Wimber uh, and, and this guy who brings the homeless man home and feeds him and gets him a shower and helps him get a job. If there were more stories like that being told, because I think they're out there, it would really shift people's perspectives on, on you know, the indifference of believers. And so the art of neighboring as a series, our, our whole goal is to be seeing people. That's our goal. That's why we want to do this four, you know, 400 interactions and hang little houses on the wall, and that's why we want to have block parties. And that's, These are all just tools for us to see people and put into action the principles that Jesus is sharing with us here. There are three things that Jay shares uh, on page 29 in your book uh, that, that basically happen when we spend our lives not loving the people around us. Isolation fear, and misunderstanding. And I think that the Holy Spirit, this is the hopeful word, that, that God is making all things new, and that the Holy Spirit is going to triumph in our hearts over isolation, fear, and misunderstanding over the course of the next six weeks, and he's going to set us on a new trajectory in terms of how we think about the people around us and how we interact with them. And so isolation creeps in slowly. It's really easy for us to leave the house with our head down every morning and pull back in the garage and sneak inside and have dinner and go to bed. And we've avoided everyone around us, right? Isolation sneaks in like that. So we do that, but our neighbors do that. And as followers of Jesus, I think we are responsible for being the ones who break that cycle, right? Um, and then the second thing, fear, comes in because we don't know anything about our neighbors. And, and what we don't know about them is scary. What we don't know about them is scary. I can tell you, I have neighbors who are outside and they're yelling all the time and they have scary dogs and they have scary broken down cars and they, their kids are scary and they're scary, they scare me. But if I knew them, I probably wouldn't be scared of their kids or their dogs or their cars because they're just people, right? So the things that we fear about our neighbors are broken down by connection. And, and misunderstanding works similarly because misunderstanding is just the story that we tell ourselves 
about why they're yelling outside or about why their dogs seem mean or about why their kids seem unruly. We, we make assumptions because we haven't taken the time to engage with people and so misunderstanding creeps in. And that's where, that's where conflict takes place. That's where fear takes hold and causes really negative and, and unfortunate things to happen. And Jay addresses this a little bit in the first chapter of the book, so I don't want to give it all away. But, you know, that's why we call the police about our neighbor's broken down car instead of knocking on the door and asking why their car is broken down and if there's anything we can do to help. That's why we call the, the, the dog catcher because our neighbor's dog has gotten out and we don't understand that maybe they're really busy and they just have a lot going on and they're sorry that the dog got out, but the dog got out again and you don't need to call the police. Just talk to your neighbor about the dog. You know, that kind of stuff, right? So this week, our challenge is to notice our neighbors in a new way. We'll start to work on some of these other goals, like kind of starting next week. But this week, the challenge is just to notice our neighbors. And you will be shocked at how much you learn by just noticing them and observing them. That sounds kind of weird, but like, they're your neighbors, so you observe them anyway, right? Now, if you're already close with your neighbors, wonderful. I'm so happy that you have a good relationship with your neighbors. What about the people in the next house, right? Because, I, you know, it's like, hey, I already know my neighbors. Well, awesome. There are other people who live on your street, too. So start noticing them. To have eyes of compassion for them is what we want. Not in a condescending way. Not in a way that's like, you know, I look at my neighbors. and Oh, what can I do for my neighbors? They're so, you know, they just need my help. They just need me. They, not that. Not that. But in, in a way that wants to know their story. That wants to know you know, the, the weird little anecdotes that they would tell us about, you know, their dad or their childhood pet or their, you know what I mean? Just the stuff that people want to share with us because you'll find that they do want to share when we engage. And I just have to say, you know, we're all on this journey. This week, Bree and I had some zucchinis that needed used, and so we, she made zucchini bread, and we said, you know, we're going to take zucchini bread, then we took some to Jaquita, and then we were going to take some to the other neighbor, and then uh, we just ate the zucchini bread because I was, like, stressed. I had a long day at work. I came home, and I was like, I'm just going to eat this. Okay? So I haven't figured this out. All right? We're working on it together. We're going to make another one. We'll take it to them, but I just had to eat that one. So um, forgive me, Father. So, worship team, you guys can come on up, and we're going to conclude with this. Uh, there's a prayer that I would love for us to write down. It's very short. And I think that if we pray it in earnest, I think if we pray this prayer and mean it, that God really will transform our hearts. And he'll get us excited about this work. And he'll make it easy for us. He'll make it easy for us. He'll give us opportunities to connect. So the prayer is, God, give me a desire to be in relationship with my literal neighbors. That's it. That's the whole prayer. Sometimes we think we have to pray long prayers that, you know, we, we labor in prayer for hours and whatever. But this week, 
that, those are your two homework assignments. One, notice your neighbors. Notice what they're up to. And maybe you can even tell some things about how they're doing based on what they're up to. And then the second thing is just to pray this prayer every day at least. But maybe even multiple times a day. You know, you could make it your, your phone screen background or whatever every time you look at your phone. Just, God, give me a desire to be in relationship with my literal neighbors. You know, write it on the mirror, put it on the fridge, whatever you got to do. But I just want us to put this in front of us this week. Because this is, this is the work of Jesus. Noticing and having compassion for people is the work of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to worship. And, while, and we're going to worship. And while we worship, I want us to just be inviting the Holy Spirit to be ministering to us uh, with respect to our relationships with our neighbors. Because maybe you listen to this whole talk and you're thinking, okay, but I really don't like my neighbors. Like, I don't want to know them. Or maybe you're thinking, like, I've had some really ugly arguments with my neighbors in the past. And honestly, the thought of knocking on their door makes me want to move. Maybe you're there, and that's okay. So as we worship, we just want to invite God to come and minister to us. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for just the wisdom of living with compassion toward the people around us. And Father, I ask that you would make this work of noticing our neighbors, make it easy for us. That's what the prayer team was hearing ahead of time, and I think that's a word for us. God, you would make it easy for us. Give us on-ramps, give us opportunities for conversation, and keep this prayer in front of us. God, give us a desire to be in relationship with our literal neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.